Hey, welcome back to the Urban Monk. Dr. Pedram Shojai here with a different type of topic today. It's something that's been uh, on my mind for a while because I hate driving. I, you know, after paying my dues living in Los Angeles, uh, clocking about two hours a day on the road, uh, it took all the pleasure out of driving away. You see these car commercials with these guys going down these windy roads and, uh, you know, really enjoying the drive. That's not reality when you live in a big city and you're just sitting there with a bunch of people between you and your destination. So I'm a big fan of the driverless car. And uh, that's the topic we're going to talk about today. Where's my driverless car? Uh, my guest is Eric Noble, who's the founder of the Car Lab. Uh, and he knows more than most on this subject. And uh, I really want to know uh, where the hell this driverless car is. Because right now I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the back of Lyfts and Ubers um, and uh, the promise has been there. So Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be on. Yeah, great. So you're you're a car guy. Um, you know, you're the founder of a thing called the Car Lab. So you've been following this stuff. And uh, you know, just just before we got on, you're telling me how your voice is all raspy because you've been on the road, uh, basically at all these uh, all these uh, shows and events. So how uh, what is the sentiment out there? Like, what where are we with this? Is it more of a promise? Is it a pipe dream? Are these guys just talking shit? Or are we going to get these things? Well, you know, actually, all of that's true. We, <laughs> we, we did just come off of um, an annual run, um, which begins really each new year with the CES or the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, about 10% of which is an auto show these days. And so, as you would imagine, a lot of driverless car uh, concepts and driverless car technology is shown at CES. And then with about a one-day gap, those of us in the industry go on to the Detroit Auto Show, where then we see more driverless concept cars, a little bit less from the consumer electronics community around the technologies. But frankly, every new year these days starts with two weeks of the promise of autonomy. Hmm. And of course, as you've already recognized, that promise continues to be just beyond reach, although we're gaining on it. So, I mean, Teslas can do it, but not really because you got to keep your hands on the wheel, right? And there's all these things that are kind of starting to come to fruition. I mean, there, there's definitely some energy uh, heading in the right direction. Um, and then there was that famous case where, you know, someone got, you know, smushed by a truck and that kind of, you know, probably set it back plenty. Um, but there's a number of accidents on the road every day. So how safe is this now? Like, what's the hang up? Well, look... In some ways, we could say the technology is just about there. And by that, I, I, I mean the sensors. So if we were just worried about vehicles being able to see each other and vehicles being able to see the sides of the roads and pedestrians and even street signs, this would really be pretty easy. Unfortunately, there are things that are more vague than that. Um, that, that make it a much more complicated process. And uh, those things usually involve humans. And I don't mean just other drivers, um, but pedestrians, cyclists, construction workers, um, uh, a traffic cop. All of them, for instance, use what, what we call gesture, right? So if I'm waiting in a line... Uh, at, a, at a highway traffic construction zone and there's a flagman or a flag person 
that flag person is holding a sign, but that flag person will also give me hand signals. That hand signal could mean go ahead. It, it also might mean go ahead with caution. Or it hmm. might mean, hey, just you go ahead, but the car behind you holds. There are all sorts of subtleties to gesture between humans. And in order for us to really get to true autonomy, the vehicles have to, A, be able to recognize that gesture, B, be able to, to interpret it correctly, C, maybe be able to gesture back, and then D, act on it. And we're an awfully long way from that. And that's really one of the big holdbacks. Wow. That's amazing. So, so it has to understand thousands and thousands of years of human expression and behavior and mannerisms that'll change between New Jersey and San Diego uh, (laughs) and interpret (laughs) like that pedestrian, um, you know, looks meek and mild and probably is going to let me go ahead and proceed through this crosswalk or that pedestrian uh, looks angry and might just jump out in front of me. And really that might be indicated only by, by facial emotion. And that's a tough problem for an autonomous vehicle to solve. My goodness. So there's a huge gap. Well, I didn't even, I, like, this is, this is actually fascinating to me because I'm like, well, you know, they're close. Didn't even think about this part of it. So uh, I'm assuming there's all sorts of software and facial recognition, you know, algorithms and all sorts of crap that they're trying to throw at this to, to get there. But is there kind of like a halfway house? Is there a way to, you know, get these guys on the freeway, but not on surface streets? Like, what are they talking about with this? Yeah, in fact, halfway would be a good word. There are vehicles for sale today from brands like Cadillac and Mercedes-Benz, so luxury vehicles, that on the highway will perform mostly autonomously. So think of it as, you know, well, in fact, I think General Motors calls it super cruise, right, as a reference to super cruise control. And it will recognize lane markings. It recognizes some signage. It certainly recognizes the boundaries and the shoulders of the road. And, you know, between here in Southern California and Las Vegas, a vehicle with super cruise might do a lot of that driving on the highway without any need for human interference. But principally, it can do that because even though the speeds are high, that's a very simple environment in which to operate. Sure, sure. There's less variables. Uh, people stay in their lanes, or they're supposed to. Um, and does that also work for bumper-to-bumper traffic? Like, is the, you know the promise of me being able to actually legally look at my phone and do something else instead of just sit there in traffic um, going to kind of cross that line soon? Yeah. In fact, as long as bumper-to-bumper traffic is mostly on a restricted access roadway, in other words, what we would call highway or a freeway. Bumper to bumper isn't that difficult to solve either because mostly you're staying in one lane. The vehicles beside you are doing the same. And what the vehicle mostly has to take care of is measuring speed and distance to the vehicle ahead of it. And that's, as already discussed, that's pretty easily done. It gets a little bit more difficult when you have lane splitting motorcycle traffic, for instance, which is legal in in the state of California. There are some overlays that can make it a little bit more complex. But yeah, I would say the prospect of us sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic and mostly being able to do other things 
while we're on a freeway or a tollway, that's probably, you know, near term future. Huh. And so then there's the the legislative issues, right? Like currently you got to keep your hands on the wheel. At what point um, is, you know, Sacramento or Washington or wherever your, your, your jurisdiction is going to be comfortable enough to say, all right, you can take your hands off the wheel, but sit in the driver's seat. There's a good question. Um, regulation is always a little bit of a wild card. Um, in the United States, we have regulation at federal and at state levels, but we also have it at county and at, and even at city levels. Ouch. What's been interesting about this one is in a lot of ways, jurisdictions have been in a race to be the first to welcome autonomous technology because it's viewed as something that is of the future and that might bring jobs to an area. So states have sort of so far fallen over themselves to, to raise their hands and say, hey, we welcome the development of driverless vehicles in our state. We're going to allow vehicles with no driver behind the wheel. We're going to allow vehicles to be operated with no hands. Um, so I'm not sure legislation um, or ju- jurisdictional statute is going to be the holdback in this case. Automakers, on the other hand, are a lot more trepidatious. Obviously, Tesla's had some deaths. Tesla is a little bit more of a risk-taking organization, and um, quite literally, some of its owners have have paid the price for that. Um, and and one presumes that a Tesla buyer, uh, you know, maybe is a hand raiser to assume that sort of risk. On the other hand, if you're Daimler Benz or if you're Ford um, and you're self-insured, and every year you have to litigate thousands of cases, you know, of wrongful death brought against your company, et cetera you're going to be much, much more cautious. And so far, the systems we see from mainstream manufacturers still do require that a hand be on the wheel, even if the vehicle's cruising on the highway and needs no driver interference. Hmm. Uh, someone had mentioned back a couple months ago, and I was in a conversation, I couldn't, they, they didn't reference it, so maybe you got this, is if you actually look at the statistics of you know these driverless vehicles per capita, the accidents are way lower, fatalities are way lower than you know kind of regular, the regular shit show that we're on in the freeways. Um, do you have any data to support that? Um, here's here's what we'd say. Right now, driverless vehicles have a little bit of a history of of being in accidents that aren't their fault. In other words, these vehicles are programmed to be cautious, but actually they're fairly often collided with by other vehicles precisely because other drivers are looking for gesture that they don't get. So a lot of times a driverless vehicle, even one that's just out now as a prototype running around Palo Alto, et cetera, those vehicles are involved in a fair number of fender benders precisely because other drivers expect certain behaviors and then don't get it right for instance if we come to a four-way stop um and it's ambiguous who got there first those four drivers will sort of look at each other and weigh out the odds so if you look at at the vehicle on your right and it's a big burly construction worker in a dodge ram and he's leaning forward in his seat, right? In other words, he looks like he's in a hurry and he looks like he might be mean or already angry. You might decide that even though I actually got to this intersection before him, 
I'm going to just let him go first. (laughs) Versus the Honda Odyssey. Right. The Honda Odyssey (laughs) with the distracted parent at the wheel. You might look at that Odyssey in exactly the same position that arrived to the intersection at exactly the same time. And you might come to a very different conclusion. You might say, well, that's a father. He's actually looking in the rearview mirror at his kids in the back seat. He's not going to take the first move. Even though technically he has the right of way, I'm going to go ahead and move forward. Now, here's the problem. If one of the vehicles at the intersection is autonomous, the driver immediately following it is also assessing that, that, that game of gesture. So if... If I'm behind a vehicle and I see it get waved forward by the vehicle on its right, which is very common, someone looks at you and says, hey, you're in more of a hurry than me. Hey, go ahead. Well, right now, the driverless vehicle can't take advantage of that. But if I'm behind it, I saw it get waved forward. I'm going to assume it's going to go. I might step on my pedal and begin to move forward. And then when it doesn't, Mm. I, I run into the back of it. There are lots and lots of examples of these sorts of incidents occurring. Now, to your point, from a safety standpoint, driverless vehicles at this point look pretty safe and they're not generating a lot of fatalities. And in the future, I think they're going to be much safer per mile than regular vehicles. How do you see this playing out? Like, is is there going to be some sort of like, you know, driven by bot kind of bumper sticker on these things. So like you get behind them, you're like, Oh, okay. Got it. This is, this is not going to go the way I I'm used to. And, and so people just get used to the driverless vehicles logic on the road. Like I'm sure, I'm sure you're starting to see like, especially in like Mountain View or places like that, you're starting to see enough of these on the road where people are getting at least slightly accustomed to it. You're exactly right. As drivers will begin to adjust our expectations Right now, the sensors on top of the vehicles are large and prominent enough that somebody in a community like San Jose or Mountain View, right, or Ann Arbor, Michigan, where lots of these vehicles are being tested, someone in one of those communities can now recognize, okay, that thing's driverless, you know, I can cut it off. Or (laughs) or it's driverless and it's not going to move until I do, right? So, yeah, to your point, we probably are going to need a system that that identifies this vehicle, much like the famous L sticker that's put on a lot of vehicles with a, a learning driver behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. It helps manage mm-hmm. the expectations of others. And by the way, this is going to be a very slow transition. We will have legacy vehicles, which are vehicles driven by humans, in the mix in a very significant way until at least middle of this century. We might have fully autonomous vehicles by 2030, but they're going to be on roadways that are 90, 90 some percent populated by legacy vehicles driven by fallible humans. Right. And, and there's the rub, right? Because in a, in a completely automated kind of dr- driver situation, they understand each other's logic. It's interesting because like, you know, there's stereotypes, you know, I, I roll up next to the grandma or, you know, there's all the stereotypes of Asian drivers and uh, Indian drivers and, uh, you know, everyone's got their stereotypes. Um, it almost seems like the industry should create like a bot stereotype. So everyone understands this is how driver's list vehicles work. Like once you understand their logic, they're like, look, he's not going to, he's not going to go, just go. Right. And I'm, and I'm sure that that is either going to come through experience or some sort of kind of messaging that comes from the industry. That's right. I think initially, 
these things will perform more or less alike. However, we've got to think about this. You mentioned different types of drivers. And let's take a, a stereotypical example of, uh, of a child and, and that child's mother, right? So if I have a 17 or 18-year-old daughter, right, the way she drives might make her mother car sick if the mother's riding as a passenger or at least uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, a 17 or 18-year-old child might find a parent's driving incredibly languid and irritating, right? Yep. In the same way, we would expect the driver of a champagne beige Cam Toyota Camry to drive like a snail on reds, right? Yep. And, and we might expect the driver of a French blue BMW M3 to drive like his hair's on fire, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's, that's all in the mental database of the human kind of the human brain. Uh, you know, you take it for granted, but these are all data points that go into our calculations when we see things. They are. But, but think about this. If I'm BMW, once I've perfected autonomous driving, my very next step is to begin to put my brand imprint on it. So the buyer of a BMW expects to get there in a lively way and to arrive first. In other words, an autonomous BMW is not going to drive the same as an autonomous Toyota Camry. And we're foolish if we think that the driving behavior of autonomous vehicles will be uniform. It won't. Mm. The buyer of a Camry doesn't want the same sort of autonomous drive that the buyer of a BMW is going to want. And vice versa. Oh, it's amazing. So there's going to be avatars associated with car brands. <laughs> well, look, this is what yeah. this is what brands about, right? Yeah, sure. Do you you want a BMW? Your autonomous driver is a badass. Sure, and and you want to huh. be able to jump in the car a little bit later, right? And 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 still get there ahead of each ahead of the next uh, the next person. On the other hand, if you jump in a Toyota Avalon, what you expect is a ride that doesn't ruffle any feathers and, and allows you, you know, sensory deprivation for the entire trip. Two very different expectations. Totally. What about the other, like, for me, I always thought of autonomous driving as almost like the Lincoln town car without the, the expensive driver, right? You're in the back, you're chilling, you're taking a nap, you're doing whatever you want to be doing and you get to where you need to get to, um, you know, limousine style, if you will. So is that just, is that just not happening? Like you got to sit in the driver's seat, you got to still like, you know, act as if and like keep your hands on the wheel. Um, you know, like it's just, it seemed like a, a completely different promise when it first kind of showed up for me. Well, look, to be clear, the promise as you described it, that, that floating on a cloud town car experience where you can completely concentrate on other things or just sleep. Right. That's the end game as far as the consumer is concerned. Right. Because as, as modern day humans, we've chosen to be time impoverished. Right. And, and, and that's another discussion for pizza and beer, right? The very devices that are supposed to free us and give us more time enslave us, right? And require our constant attention. 
But the reality Amen. in bumper to bumper traffic, nine out of 10 drivers would, would prefer the scenario you painted out, which is the backseat of the town car, a limousine like experience where they can concentrate on their media. And what they don't want is a bunch of interference from, you know, outside input. And that is the promise. But we're an awfully long way from that because to deliver that, you as the occupant or, or, or we as the, the ex-drivers are going to be so distracted doing other things, there's no tapping us on the shoulder and getting us to grab the wheel to save things at the last moment in an emergency, right? Yeah, I mean, look, that that takes away the whole damn thing, right? If I got to be vigilant enough to say, hey, this this computer might smack me and say, you know, you got to pull the wheel to save your life, then I'm not taking a nap, right? And that's the point. Like you you have to you still have to show up it sounds like. Correct, correct. And and that destroys the promise. It's also impractical. I think Volvo some years ago did some really good pioneering studies around this. And what Volvo found is it takes 15 and often 30 seconds to bring a driver back into the loop in a way that will be effective. <laughs> if that driver's really doing something else, there's no just beeping an alarm. The driver grabs the wheel, recognizes the situation and makes the save. That's not going to happen that way. You know, in, in the last 10 years, there was a lot of great study about multitasking. And there's still a lot of debate about whether humans really multitask well or not. And there's the old stereotype that women certainly multitask better than men who are single track minds. But the reality is, and military studies show this, right, that when we're asked to multitask, we perform both tasks poorly. Yep. Right. And this is your point. If I can't really take my mind off the road, I won't find my time on the tablet interacting with someone very satisfying, nor will I be a very good driver in an emergency situation. So the challenge we have with autonomy is it doesn't really work until it really works. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, what we have now is some sort of like weird hybrid with distracted driving where people are still playing with their devices and, and you know, being jackasses on the road and crashing and killing people um, without the autonomy, um, but then handing it over to something that requires you to come back and we forget about it. Like, you know, people are people are, are distracted enough and at 60 miles an hour, 30 second reaction time. It's way too late. You're right. And, and the statistics show exactly what you just what you just mentioned we're at a we're at a low spot in in the last 30 years in terms of highway safety in other words deaths per mile traveled in the last few few years have actually risen again for, for hmm. a long time with seat belts and with rollover protection and with anti-lock brakes and with airbags we made great progress and deaths per million miles traveled declined and declined and declined and declined and declined. But in the last, in the last few years with more distraction back in the vehicle, all that technology isn't enough to save us from doing something we all know is dumb, but we all do, which is answer the text. 
So yep. right now, technology has brought us back to a more dangerous area era. Eventually, autonomy will rescue us from that, but it's going to be a while, unfortunately. Uh, what do you think of the, what do they call it? The, like the Apple car and all these things where they're trying to kind of embed the tech, at least the device, you know, playing through the car in an interface that's, that's better to use. You have like your thumbs and, you know, some sort of heads up display. Is that, is that any better or is that still kind of some of the same kind of bitter, bitter medicine there? I I think it's bitter medicine. I, I also think that it's an interim step. It's interesting because most of us, uh, unfortunately, have uh, in in the first world who were who were career employed have business travel. And any and, and most of us that have business travel have to get on flights. And what you find today, if you get on an airplane and fly from, uh, you know, Los Angeles to San Jose, or from Dallas to Chicago, right? or from, from New York City to Charlottesville is effectively an autonomous environment. And here's what I mean by that. We as occupants do not have to be involved at all in the operation of that, of that passenger plane. Yes, there's a pilot up there. Sometimes the pilots are eating you know, rubber chicken with the rest of us and the autopilot's working. Sometimes the pilot's flying the plane. But as far as we're concerned as as passengers, it's all autonomous to us. So if we look around the plane and observe what's happening in an autonomous environment, we see the future. If you look around a plane today, almost never is anyone looking out the window. In fact, usually the flight attendants ask us now to close our blinds. And 90% of us as passengers on the plane are on a screen of some sort. We're on a Kindle reading, um, we're on a laptop doing work, or we're using the seat back screen for entertainment, right? The other 10% of us are socializing with each other, right? Or we're asleep. I think that's a really good picture of the environment we all as humans are naturally going to fall into when the vehicle's truly autonomous. We'll basically be completely disengaged from the travel happening around us. That's really what we want. We're just a ways from being able to deliver that. Yeah, I was going to say, I want that time back, but, you know, the the airline has the FAA and they control, you know, basically anyone who's allowed up there and they, you know, make sure everyone's got enough space and let the, you know, let the autopilot in the in the planes do their job there's just a hell of a lot more chaos down here on earth um that's fascinating so what like what are the predictions in terms of like how long it's going to take for ai or you know the recognition software to start understanding human gesture i think it'd be safe to say that true level five autonomy and level five is an industry standard set by the society of automotive engineers And level five just means there's no longer any controls for the user. In other words, the thing's truly, truly autonomous all the time. From your driveway to the neighborhood street, to the major arterial, to the highway, and off again, right? Even to a forest service dirt road, that thing never requires a user. True level five is probably 20, 30 plus 
And there are many experts that would push that out to about 2037. Now, that said, we're going to have a lot of progress between now and then. We're going to have intelligent cruise control. We're going to have lane keep assist. We're going to have automatic brake application. We're going to have a lot of steps along the way that will make our vehicles safer again, even as we become more distracted. But true, true level five is still, you know, probably at least a decade away despite breathless announcements at press conferences from automakers who were all trying to claim the brass ring. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, I was looking at uh, these devices on Star Trek Next Generation decades before the iPad came out. But- <laughs> yes, and, and they were pretty cool, and we finally got them, right? And we finally got them. It just took a minute. Yeah. That's fascinating. So I'm, I'm going to pivot real quick because I'm also fascinated in another part of this thing, which is the electric car. And, you know, the, the closest thing to the electric car that I want is the Tesla SUV, which isn't even an SUV. It's like a little, you know, it's a station wagon with with no trunk space, right? And so it's like, when can I get a Hummer that can go off road that's electric? And is that ever going to like, you know, be on the market? Uh, and will the efficiency be there? Or is that also going to lag like crazy? Well, look, global regulations... Um, from from China, well, starting in California, but have now spread to much of Western Europe and China. Global regulations are demanding electrification of our vehicle fleets now at, at very, very rapid rates. So whether those vehicles are profitable or not for automakers is a different question. But to answer your, your you know, challenge in, in terms of when are these available to me as an end user, I think in the next five years, we're going to see an awful lot of vehicles in, a, in an awful lot of segments, including SUVs, that are, that are coming to the market as full battery electrics, mostly because automakers are compelled to do this um, by state and, and national laws that are encouraging it, uh, mostly as a way to battle greenhouse gas. Yeah, great. I mean, that's... That's the fight of our lifetimes right there. And so, you know, to get these cars, these gas guzzlers off the road and go electric, I mean, that's that's a hell of a promise. What was the what's the mandate in California? Uh, what year do they have to kind of turn over by? Well, California's got um, a progressing, almost think of it as a grid, right? Mm. And, and up. what it means is as a manufacturer, the more ICE, the more gasoline or combustion-powered cars you sell, um, the more zero-emission vehicles you have to sell each year in order to keep selling gasoline-powered cars. Um, California has, has, has set some objectives for what it calls electrification, um, and, and so has China, and so has Western Europe. Electrification, though, I want to caution, can be a little bit of a squishy term because Electrification doesn't just mean full battery electric vehicles like the Nissan Leaf. Um, electrification includes vehicles that are hybrids of all sorts. Mm. I think the good news is if, if there are some folks that are a little bit impatient about how long it's taking the fleet to become all electric, the, the interim steps that are happening are actually happening very, very rapidly. In other words, we, by 2030, I think it'll be hard to find a vehicle to purchase that isn't electrified in some way. 
In other words, that doesn't have a really good stop start system, that isn't a mild hybrid, that probably isn't 48 volts, right? In other words, even if you bought a, a, a pedestrian uh, mid-sized CUV 2032, that thing probably operates a lot of the time in electric mode and gasoline remains on board to extend the range and for a more dense form of power supply. And I think from that standpoint, we can make very, very rapid progress against greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions. You know, I, I, I'm a professor at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, and we train about a quarter of the world's car designers. Hmm. And those of us in the transportation design department did not invent this phrase, but there's a phrase that designers often use at Art Center. And that phrase is this, that perfection can be the enemy of the good. <laughs> and oftentimes our pursuit of fully zero emission vehicles has been at the expense of maybe greater sales of hybrid vehicles like the Prius that aren't perfect, but would put a huge dent in our GHG emissions. You know, um, when we started all of this discussion about GHG, let's say 20 years ago, when we really got going with it, um, vehicles were about, or transportation was about 25% of greenhouse gas emission. Um, since that time, the state of California has, has been pursuing perfection. And really full electric vehicles still don't sell even in this state. In the meantime, transportation is up to about 30% of greenhouse gas production. Not because vehicles have gotten worse, but because the numbers of vehicles have increased mm -hmm. and other industries like power generation are starting to clean up their act. So I think one of the cautions for all of us who care about the planet is, yeah, we can seek perfection, but sometimes we can let that get in the way of progress. Um, and if you looked around on the road today and you took a hundred vehicles and you converted 80 of them to just hybrids like the Prius, we would have lowered greenhouse gas emissions of vehicles back to about 1990 levels already. Would those vehicles be perfect? In other words, would they be truly zero emissions at the tailpipe? The answer is no. Um, but, you know, on an airplane recently, I watched Al Gore's Inconvenient Sequel. Mm -hmm. And we've been fiddling while Rome burns. And Rome, yeah. Rome is literally burning. So I think we need to ask really hard questions about, are we willing to take incremental progress and get ourselves back down to 1990 emissions levels? Or are we going to continue to seek perf uh, perfection and maybe cook the planet? Yeah, wait, wait for some magic technology to show up that we haven't invented yet. Yeah, I think it's much easier to just say, you know what, we may not solve it all, but let's use some restraint and some existing technology and see if we can move things forward. That's a great point. That's a great point. I mean, I can't wait. Like, my, my wife loves the Range Rover. We can't be caught dead driving those because those things, you know, you don't want to be in an SUV guzzling that kind of gas. So when a Range Rover comes out with a hybrid electric, I think I might be their first customer. <laughs> <laughs> I hope your podcast continues to go extremely well there. <laughs> that will not be a cheap ride.
<laughs> no, no, it's not a cheap ride to begin with. She's got expensive tastes. <laughs> oh, man. Well, this has been great. Look, I'm very uh, happy to have connected with you. Uh, there are points in this in this ecosystem that I wasn't even thinking about. And it's fascinating. It's like, you know, the computer's got to get better. The, the, the face recognition gesture software has to get better. And we're, you know, this is AI. I mean, to have a car understand what a guy is doing by nodding, um, that's that's sophisticated stuff, and I get why we're I, I now get why we're stuck behind it and why it's taken so long. Well, look, I'm very appreciative of what you're doing. Um, as a society, if we really care about the future, we have to start by asking the right questions, and that and that leads to conversation, and and that's what moves us forward. If we don't ask the right questions, we don't get anywhere, and you're doing that. Amen. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, Eric Noble of the Car Lab, um, hope to have you back again. This has been Dr. Pedram Shojai, the Urban Monk. Hope you enjoyed it. Let me know in the comments, threads, and I will see you in the next show. Mm -hmm.